Welcome to the Food Intelligence Podcast. My name is Ron, and in this episode, we talk to Rachel Weinberg from Freshly. She is the Senior Manager of Market Insights and Culinary Innovation, so a lot of really great things to learn from her about how to look into the future and figure out what is going to resonate with consumers. So let's get into the episode. Yeah, so we just uh, recorded the first episode of this with um, Einav Geffen, who is uh, an executive chef at uh, Unilever, um, which was a really, really great conversation. We have uh, a few really great people lined up uh, to, to talk to. Um, but yeah, so once again, really, uh, thank you so much for, for joining us. We, we really love the work that, uh, that we've done together, um, although we're not really so much uh, here to talk about that today. Um, more, I just kind of want to talk about your role at uh, Freshly and kind of understand uh, how you do what you do. So you are Senior Manager of Market Insights and Culinary Innovation, right? Yes. It's uh, two titles in one. It's just they all, it all makes sense together. Um, but basically what I do, what that means is that um, I am in the end product of that is our concepts. So the start of that. Um, is that I do market insights and trend insights. And I take those and I sort of match them with internal consumer insights. And mm-hmm. we create the menu for each season, um, making sure that the menu addresses the uh, current wants of the marketplace, also what our current customers want, and then what we're hearing feedback-wise from current current customers, potential customers, um, mm-hmm. but also taking into account that there's always new trends and new products, new flavors, and we want to make sure that the menu makes sense for the future of food as well. We're, we're innovating. Our pipeline's a little shorter than like traditional CPG. So we're at about eight months in terms of, so right now we're looking about a year ahead, a little less than a year ahead for the menu. Um, but we try to look into a crystal ball and, and think about what the customer is going to want, what our customer is going to want for that menu yeah. season. So um, yeah, it's just a fancy way of saying I create the menu concepts. Not alone. I have a great team that works with me, and we obviously have an amazing culinary and R and D team. And um, but yes, yeah. And I and I really want to get into like the process of you know how one of these uh, meals actually get developed. But before then, so the the end product is uh, is are always going to be the uh, pre made meals that are available on these menus, right? Uh, or is there like another type of product? Um, that uh, you work on? Prepared meals. Um, that is Freshly's product. Um, we have prepared mm-hmm. meals, microwave for a couple minutes, uh, all delivered fresh. It's not frozen. Um, mm-hmm. All of it's just really great, craveable meals with a really wonderful health halo around it. Um, and then we also have Freshly Fit, which is specifically designed to people that are a little bit more conscious about what they're eating um, and about their health. But but everything does take health into account. So um, that's sort of the halo that sits around all of our meals. But yes, fresh, mm-hmm. prepared meals. And uh, direct to consumers. Direct to consumers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is, is there any collaboration from your end with um, with other uh, businesses that you sell into? Or is your focus always and forever what the consumers want and what are they looking for? And, and you treat them as your end customers? My main focus is the direct-to-consumer piece. So what mm-hmm. I'm always working on is that end product, which is the prepared meals, 
that go just to the individual consumer. That is, that's my primary focus. It seems like that's the, where most of the, the fun is right in the, and in the innovation. Yeah, it is where all the fun is because we have a lot of meals on the menu and we're working on increasing our SKU count. So there's so much opportunity to provide people with kind of what we know they want. You know, there's a lot of comfort food and a lot of um, like very traditional American comfort, global comfort. But because we innovate so fast and we're always putting new meals on the menu, we have a really wonderful opportunity to also test, constantly test new flavors and ingredients and get pretty immediate feedback from our customers, from the user, the person who's consuming the meal. Um, mm -hmm. So it's really great to collect that data and see what's resonating. Um, and if certain trends are, people are responding to those trends, should we be using more of it? Should we not? And it is, it's pretty fascinating to see where consumer tastes sort of sit. Um, and I've been with Freshly over two years. So definitely like tastes change year after year. And we have such a great opportunity to always get really great, pretty immediate insight into where uh, people's preferences are going. It's fascinating because um, we we recently did a piece of uh, research on trends that were kind of incepted during COVID, but then sort of uh, uh, solidified, cemented themselves into mainstream trends. And some of those, of course, are going to be things that have more to do with the method of preparing and uh, and serving the food. And some of them will have to do with the food themselves. Um, but it was interesting because it was always whatever the underlying motivation for these things seemed to be the the connecting like tissue between them. So an example was grazing boxes became really big um, and um, and uh, like uh, cocktail kits uh, became really big. But both of those things are tied to the same kind of motivation, which is I'm trying to recreate something that I that I lost, um, which is really, really fascinating. Yeah. And I wonder if when you guys do sort of the next round of insights into that, what, what it'll look like, because I know there's a lot of fatigue around doing stuff yourself at home. It seemed really yeah. fun. We didn't know how long this would last. So let's do cocktail kits and meal kits and whatever else, like let's something to take up time while we're sitting at home. And there's been definite, I've just seen from, you know, various news stories and just chatter, online chatter. There's a lot of fatigue now around cooking. It's not as fun as everyone thought it was. No one wants to clean up. No one wants to buy all the ingredients. It never tastes as good as when someone else makes it for you. So even though I think there's a fraction of the population that's going to stick with it because they've probably found a new love for it, a new hobby that they can partake in. I think for, for most of us, we got sick of cooking about two months into this. And then yeah. <laughs> like, bring me my food and that's it. And yeah. I'm going to take... I think there's definitely going to be a, a big surge of going back to restaurants when people can, when it's safe, when there's, when stuff's vaccinated, you know, when everyone's vaccinated, but there's also going to be a lot of people who are still very cautious. And I think that's still a great opportunity for Freshly to bring restaurant quality meals right to their home when they're just not ready yet to go out into the world. And we just did a chef collaboration. We just announced it two weeks ago with four really well-known chefs in the United States who are doing restaurant quality meals. And so for all those people that couldn't trap, that can't travel, can't get to those restaurants or who just want that same experience at home. Now we're, we're able to give them that. So yeah, it's interesting. It's going to be interesting to see where all of the trends that have, I mean, they're not fads. They're definite. They've, mm -hmm. 
you know, they've taken a place into in society and in our day-to-day lives. So I wouldn't call them fads, but it's going to be interesting to see what sticks and what fades as people kind of get back to living normal yeah. lives. No, for sure. I, I mean, I think it's, um, it's really it's really interesting to to see um, the shifts in uh, in these types of things. Um, so you you talked uh, a lot about um, uh, the way that uh, you guys innovate when you're preparing uh, your when you're trying to think like b- basically look into the future a year ahead what our customers are going to want. Um, so how do you feel that you balance? the really innovative stuff like the new meals and the new flavors and the maybe more international flavors that uh, that you're working on versus like the tried and true i know that people have always wanted this meal and uh like do do you feel internally are you encouraged to go out and try new things and test them out and see how they do um or to just go after like the tried and true i mean obviously we keep seeing new types of meals so i think i kind of know the answer but i'm uh, i'm excited to learn a bit more about uh about that balance that process yeah so it is definitely a balance and we have meals that we know that our customers really like and you don't want to touch those meals and there's just certain things that you just can't change too much because then it won't resonate with people On the other side of that, we are in, we do want to make sure that we're including trending ingredients, new ingredients, innovative things into our meals, but in really approachable ways. Because, and this is something I've been saying even before Freshly when I was in CPG land, you can't have tons of innovative ingredients in an innovative format. You have to you have to pick which one you want. So you can have an innovative format, but all of the ingredients and components have to be approachable or vice versa. So things like yesterday, my friend had a Zatar bagel. Great. I think if you live in the bubbles of like New York, LA, obviously in Israel, you know what Zatar is. You're familiar with it. But for a big part of the population in the United States, they've never heard of it and certainly don't know what it is. But everyone knows what a bagel is. And a bagel is one of the most appro- approachable things ever. So if you want to test people's willingness to experiment with Zatar with that flavor, put it on a bagel and give it to them. And then maybe you can move down the road and give them shakshuka. I don't know. You know, it's like it's a balance because and also for me, I have to really think about what is innovative um, because Shakshuka to me is not innovative. It, mm-hmm. It's a very basic dish I've been eating since I was a child. But again, for middle America, it is. So um, you'd have to do something that's, you'd have to call it baked eggs and put very approachable ingredients in it. You maybe wouldn't want to put Zatar as like a leading flavor. So I think the very long short answer is we are encouraged to do it. We just have to make sure that we do it in a way where It is approachable, but we also have a way to get data back because we we don't want, we're not data blind, but we're definitely data driven. And we don't want to just create a meal and sell it and not know which components people like or dislike, especially when you're talking about new ingredients. Because we want to know that people either like or don't like the Zatar or whatever, Duca or Ras Al whatever. I don't know why the African spices yeah. in my head today, but um <laughs> Yeah, we want to ha- we want to have a way to collect data about what where those consumer preferences are going. Um and the same goes for a format if we have a new format, it's, you know, a very approachable 
list of ingredients, you know, it's not, you can't have both. You have to test, you have to test new, new ideas and new products in, in comfortable, familiar ways. And, and since your meals get um, like rated, you have like the, uh, the one to five rating, right? For, for every meal. Um, do you allow uh, maybe like a, a broader margin for meals that you know have like experimental or innovative flavors in them when you're collecting that feedback? Or do you benchmark them against, you know, the, the you know, all-star meals? Well, we always want everything to be as high of a rating as possible. Um, and our meals are very highly rated. So I'm very proud of that. Um, I, I wouldn't say we, we definitely take into account that, some meals, mac and cheese and meatloaf are just, and a steak are just going to do better than something that's new and innovative. So we definitely take it into account. And then we also look at all the consumer feedback because we have great consumer feedback and we see what people are saying about the meals and that gets taken into account also. So one of the things I was, I ran a workshop yesterday and one of the things I was talking about was not being afraid. Sometimes we're, we're not a company that is good with like taking like the early adopters of an ingredient and you know, they're, they're not going to come to freshly for that. They're coming for the health. They're coming for the comfort food. Um, but maybe not like chocolate covered crickets. So that's not a place where we, that's not our sweet spot. We're more, you know, proliferation and ubiquity and like, where a good amount of people have heard about us and, or heard, you know, and understand an ingredient. So yesterday we were talking about yucca chips. So plantains, a couple of years ago, we did plantains on a dish. It didn't, it didn't work out well. And I think now two years later, I was encouraging them to take another look at plantains because there's been such a shift in like, the understanding of Caribbean food and West African food and Jamaican food. And so now there's probably a larger swath of people that have heard about yucca chips and plantain chips. And so you never want to just say this didn't work and we can't ever revisit it because 20 years ago, no one heard of sriracha and no one would put it on anything. But now like McDonald's has a sriracha chicken sandwich. So, you know, things we always want to experiment. And if it doesn't work, think about it and not don't never use it again. Just keep track of how things are shifting and changing and then maybe find a new place for it down the road when, uh, you know, there's more consumer awareness around it. You know, things like jackfruit, I think are sort of in that same boat. Um, every year I see jackfruit on everyone's trend list, not on mine, but it's on everyone's trend list. And I know people want jackfruit to catch on, but for some reason, the, the larger amount of consumers in this country are not catching on to jackfruit. So, um, but it's not, not worth revisiting every year. I yeah. look at jackfruit again and I think about it and then I say, pass, we're not going to use jackfruit. Um, carob is the same. I'm going to say all the trends that I hate seeing on trend lists, carob, <laughs> everyone put carob on their trend list. And I have like nightmares from Hebrew school about carob. I'm like, we're not, <laughs> we're not using carob in anything. Um, but yeah, we, I, I try to revisit things because not everything, things are just too new for people sometimes. And you, you have to give them some time to, for the consumer to become aware of them. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the whole kind of like personality of us as consumers and, and the thing that we're interested in, um, 
it's constantly changing. I mean, even if uh, for the same person, right? Like as you as you get older, or as you have more experiences and the different things that you're interested in uh, will also affect your palate, will also affect the the way you, you know, consume um, uh, your diet and definitely the, the food that you consume and that you're interested in. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting uh, because for me, for example, while I'm not uh, vegan myself, most of my friends are vegans. Um, and this was not the case uh, let's say even five years ago or, or six years ago. Um, and just living in that space has completely changed both my view of the food industry and also the, the things that I eat. Like I'm, it is very normal to me right now that like at a social gathering or anytime I think about like food that is snackable or, or food that is meant to, to host people, even if it's not specifically for my friends, I go immediately to, like vegan cuisine. Um, and, and I find a lot of innovation happens there because it has moved so far beyond let's just do like an alternative of a meat-based meal. It has become its own thing with uh, its whole world of innovation. So, and maybe five years ago, I would like scoff at it, right? But like uh, you you grow up and you learn. Um, so you, you talked a little bit about um, how you encouraged your team to think about these things. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, how the team is structured uh, and and how uh, the responsibilities within that team are are built out? Yeah, I mean, okay, so my team, the meals team, um, mm. it's a small team that sort of works on that front end piece. Um, and we have we each have very distinct responsibilities. So, you know, a lot goes into creating a meal. And unfortunately, it's not just like, this is the meal I want. You know, we have to really look at consumer insights. We have to look at cost. We have to look at operational capabilities. We have to look at sourcing and procurement. So there's there's a lot of things that go into making a meal. Even a meal as simple as like mac and cheese, you know, there's a structure around that meal and what has to come together to, to make that happen. One of the challenges from an innovation standpoint is there's lots of ingredients I would love to try. Um, but sometimes we can't source them in the quantities we need. Freshly is a very large company and we're cranking out a lot of meals. And that means some of the newer ingredients that I might want to try and experiment with, we can't source them, you know, in the quantities that we want. So, um, you know, and then obviously, we're a company. We make money. That's what companies do. So cost kind of um, is taken into account. Also, I do think our, the front end piece where we're looking at market insights, consumer insights, and just innovation in general, in terms of like ingredient innovation, um, I do think we do a really, really amazing job with that. And we capture every concept and they're, you know, in our database and we revisit them because things change, not just consumer tastes change, pricing change, sourcing capabilities change. Um, so we're constantly revisiting those also, but we do have a very, very innovative and creative team. Um, I bring in a lot of chefs from the, from the outside to come and inspire the team. Um, obviously during COVID, it's been a little bit more challenging, a lot of virtual, but I don't think innovation happens in four walls. You need to get out into the world and see what's sort of happening um, and understand what other people are doing and what other people are working with. Um, but we, our, our core team 
isn't huge, but every role is addressed so that the meal can come together in a pretty rapid time frame. Um, and we come out with really amazing quality meals that I that I hope are innovative. I hope um, I don't know if you've had a chance to look over the menu, but I think there's a nice balance of comforting food and food that has like little components here and there um, that are for the greater population, probably pretty innovative. Um, mm -hmm. We have, you know, meals with turmeric in it and we have um, a purple sticky rice meal that has gotten a lot of attention lately. And again, like purple sticky rice to me, cause I eat Korean food and I love it, but for the larger population, you know, that might not be um, something that they've ever seen. And it's nice for us to have the ability to bring that to them and for them to try and for the customers to trust us with giving them food that we know that they'll like. So, um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's hard to really go too in depth about how the team is structured. Yeah. But I think the best way I can say it is that all of those components that go into how you would create many thousands of a meal um, are addressed on the core team. Um, and obviously, there's the larger Freshly company that's really doing all the heavy lifting and the hard work. Um, and it's just, you know, everybody, everybody does what needs to be done to get it, you know, to get the meals made. So is the way that it works is that when you or someone on your team, uh, you come up with the ideas for the next like um, um, batch of meals that uh, you want to work on or that uh, that you want to build, um, you have to pitch it internally with uh, all of uh, what you just broke down, the innovation itself on on the food, but also the, the pricing, the shipping, the sourcing, uh, everything and kind of get it approved. So, um, yeah, it's it's a there's a process. Um, mm -hmm. that's sort of hard to go too in depth into, um, we don't get super bogged down with like stakeholder approval and alignment. Um, there's a team that is trusted to address consumer insights and market insights and trend work, um, and sort of work with the culinary team to formulate these new concepts. And then we mm -hmm. review them and then the people that have to have input on pricing and sourcing, it get you know it goes down that process and obviously approval from operations and R&D and um yeah it's too it's too in depth to go through like yeah. the entire process um but it's a it's a pretty fast process and and coming from a background of being um on the new product innovation side in CPG as a consultant those pipelines were two years um mm -hmm. and then I haven't even addressed the fact that we have an amazing marketing team that has to build a story around all of these meals that resonates with our customers. So mm -hmm. it's a pretty impressive thing that the company does to get the meals out in such a rapid way. Um, and obviously on the front end of that, all the market insights I'm doing, I use TasteWise for a lot of that, as you know, as Deborah knows, because I'm constantly asking her for help with, with new things that I'm looking at. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of market insights that just go into it so that we can think about whether this is something that customers want. Um, but it's a pretty fast process after we start doing the concepts. Yeah. Fast process uh, until the actual meal is in production. Yeah. I mean, from start yeah. to finish eight months, which amazing. is pretty impressive. And that's not just one meal. That's a whole season of meals. So we work kind of seasonally. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's many meals for each season. 
Yeah. Is marketing involved in uh, in the creation of these meals? Like you mentioned that they do, they have to tailor stories around these meals and, uh, and create campaigns for them. So are they involved um, at this stage where you're at right now planning a year ahead? Or is it more like, these are the meals we're working, uh, go build stories for them? So I do um, a lot of the front end in a uh, concepting process and blue sky for farther ahead three to five years. But um, I try to include as many people as possible. So when I do events, I try to do front end innovation events at the beginning of every season to inspire people just so everybody can get a glimpse of what people are doing in the outside world, what some, what some food trends might be. So I do a, a trend deck and then I'll do an event hopefully in person, but a lot of virtual lately. Um, and I try to include as many people as want to be included in that. And I ask for concepts from everybody. And even when new people start, I always tell them, if you have a concept that you're really passionate about, send me a note and let me know what that is. In the end, not every concept works and I have to tailor them to meet, you know, we have a formula and we have a way that we build meals. So things have to be tailored and modified and then culinary has to modify it so that we can actually commercialize. But um, sometimes they're involved, sometimes they're not. We try to keep them involved, you know, as early as possible because we want them to know what's going into those meals because all of what's going into the meal will be part of that end story of the meal. So yeah. new formats, new ingredients, any trend inclusions, health inclusions. Um, and we want them to be able to talk about all of that. So yeah, as close as they can get to the beginning part of that process to understand the the earliest part of that meal and you know where it came from we want them to be involved so they can tell the story in a better way yeah no that uh, that makes a lot of sense so for if kind of going back to the meals themselves a little bit um so we talked a little bit about you know the that balance between uh the mac and cheese or you know the the sticky rice like the things that are more innovative and different and um and kind of out there that either you know, cater to the people who are looking for these things or also exposing people to something that maybe they didn't know they liked and they tried because they trust you. Um, so do you feel like you're seeing any sort of pattern um, on these more innovative meals that tend to make them successful? Like, for example, what you said, when you try one new innovative thing within, you know, the framework of something that is that is tried and true, but um, have you noticed like any other patterns of what makes the the more unique meals successful? I mean, not to be redundant, but it's really all about that balance of a new ingredient and a familiar format or, you know, familiar format, new ingredient or wh whatever version of that you mm -hmm. want. Something has to feel comfortable. You know, with the purple sticky rice, they might not really know where the purple comes from. They might not understand Korean food. But people like sticky rice. People know rice. People like Asian rice. They So the, they're at least willing to give it a try. And so in that meal, within that meal, we could put one or two new components ingredient-wise because we're already drawing them in with the sticky rice. So that's already the pull. And then they're willing to try something else. You know, the same thing goes with like, you know, if Beyond Meat and those companies hadn't started with a burger and they had tried to sell people on some crazy format with this like fake meat. I want to say it in like an, a diplomatic way, but I don't know what else to call it. Um, it wouldn't have been successful, but who won't try a burger? Even people that, that eat yeah. animals will at least give a burger a try. Why not? Yeah. 
So, you know, we think we have a beet risotto. So maybe people aren't familiar with like adding beets to some, to a meal or what like the, the health components of beets are and why you should be eating more beets. People like risotto. So they're willing to give that a try. Um, and, you know, we have pasta that's, you know, cauliflower pasta, um, which Trader Joe's has also done a great job with. Lots of companies have done a great job adding vegetables to pasta. But we we just try to, to gently fold in those ingredients to very familiar places. And that's really, I think, where people are, mo- where companies are most successful. So now that... Um that you're working on, you know, the, the next menu and, you know, eight months from now or, or 10 months from now, you're going to have like the next batch of, uh, of meals. Um, once that process is done, do you immediately go over to, to start working on the next menu after that? Or is there any work on kind of like the ongoing? I mean, we're not just working on, you know, we're working on the front end of the winter concepts for next mm-hmm. year. But simultaneously, we're working on the end stage of summer concepts and the middle stage of fall concepts. And we have a really amazing culinary team, R&D team and operations team that's constantly like cranking out prototypes because obviously we don't just make a meal and then commercialize however many thousands of, of units of that skew. There's a, you know, there's a, there's a very precise prototype process that we go through. So there's never a break. There's always you know, there's always a step of the process that we're working on for a season. So we're working on innovation and concepts for winter next year, but Mm -hmm. we're also finalizing summer and fall. So no breaks. We're just constantly doing concepts and prototypes and tasting and continuous process. So is your like background personally, um, did you come from like the culinary world before consulting to to CPGs and then moving on to Freshly? Um, so I had a very interesting trajectory. I started in restaurants and then um, I was living in Austin where I dropped out of college after three and a half years. My parents were so proud. Um, but I was in restaurants and I knew I wanted to do something in food. This was a long time ago and there wasn't there wasn't like a food business like there is now. There were restaurants and like the start of the Food Network. Uh, it was a few years into the Food Network. So chefs were starting to become celebrities and restaurants were starting to become a place instead of just like go out to dinner. Um, but I moved to New York and I worked for a marketing company that was not in the food industry. And this is where a little bit of luck comes in. The owner of the company decided to sell the company and he partnered with a uh, and start something new. So he partnered with a guy who had been one of the first four people at AOL who had nothing but money to burn and said, whatever you guys want to do, let's just do it. So I was like, oh, great. This is my chance. So I said, I have a great idea. We should do a marketing agency that's just focused on food and beverage. And the guys were like, okay. I mean, neither one of them cared. <laughs> like, uh, they're like, okay, that sounds cool. Like, let's give it a try. Because it didn't really exist. I mean, my whole case for doing this was all these restaurants are popping up and all these chefs and all these companies are becoming really popular. Who's helping them? Who's doing the marketing if they don't have someone internal? So we started and we got very lucky. We 
a place called Magnolia Bakery. I don't know if you're familiar with Magnolia Bakery. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. pretty big here. They only had one location at the time. And for some reason, they trusted us to do their marketing and expansion plan. Just like three people who just started this food marketing agency. So it kind of snowballed from there. So we started Magnolia was our first um, client. So I did that for many years. And then a lot of our clients were coming to us and just asking how we could help them innovate. They felt like they were always playing catch up. They could never capture a trend at the right time. Um, And also because their pipeline is 24 months. So cake pops might be popular today, but if you try to develop a cake pop two years from now, no one cares about it anymore. So they wanted a way a process to be able to look into the future a little bit better to try to develop meals that came out in a timely way so that they were capturing trends instead of chasing them. Um, And I was intrigued by that and my partners were not. So I just left. I decided to leave and try something new. And that's what I've been doing ever since. And again, I got very lucky because my first client was ConAgra. Um, And they're obviously a billion dollar food conglomerate. Um, and they really believed in this innovation process that I came up with. Um, and Nestle was doing a lot of work in that same space too, which is funny because now Nestle owns Freshly. Um, and I did a project with Nestle very early on also. So do you feel like most of your, cause you clearly have a really good understanding, um, at the meal level, what goes into a, a really good meal, like a successful meal And uh, not just what goes into the meal itself, but also how do people feel about it? How do people think about it? So do you feel that that came from your work with um, with customers Um, or or did that uh, because because when you worked at restaurants, like uh, were you working like more as a chef or more as the business side? Everything, everything. I've done everything. Um, And I spent a lot of years working with a chef in the United States doing um, events with him. So I've had. Mm-hmm. Plenty of time in the kitchen. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, yeah. you know, it's, it's funny if I look back and think about how my innovation process used to be, and I hope I'm in, I hope this is going to answer your question, but a lot of trends start, it's a weird trickle down process. So they start at very high end restaurants. So I traveled a lot and went to a lot of restaurants and worked with a lot of chefs and met a lot of chefs and asked them a lot of questions. And if you really look at a trend, you'll see that it really starts very high up. And then the chefs sort of at this next level want to emulate the chefs at the top level, but they have to modify it a little bit for their consumer base. And then as all of this, that's a very, that's a broader group of chefs start, they all start doing it and it starts resonating with customers. Then that next group sees it. And then Cheesecake Factory sees it and gloms onto it. Um, And obviously this is not, a five month trickle down process. It's a two year trickle down process, but you can see a lot of trends start to form in higher end restaurants um, and what those chefs are doing and working with and ingredients. Um, And not even, it's not all three Michelin star restaurants. Even if you go to like, you know, you know, an upscale casual restaurant somewhere and you start seeing patterns. So I don't think that anything's like going to be a super great trend if I'm just seeing it in New York and San Francisco But if I start seeing things in Kansas City or in Nashville, Tennessee, then I start thinking to myself, wow, it's so interesting. I've now seen Duca on a menu in the middle of nowhere, Idaho. That signals to me that somehow, some way, a chef 
got a hold of it, saw a concept, a customer wanted it. They've asked for it multiple times if it's staying on the menu. Um, so there's sort of, you can start seeing patterns in how things develop. Um, and then also a lot of social chatter, which, you know, TasteWise didn't exist 10, 15 years ago, but there was a lot of online, what are people talking about? What are, you know, if there's 10,000 pizza places opening up with prominent chefs in one year, you can kind of sense that in the next year, there's going to be a lot of pizza that people are talking about. Um, but yeah. it took a lot more digging to, to understand that social chatter way back when. I don't, I don't, I now have much better resources, yeah. but it is really important to capture that because there's sort of yeah. two silos of, of chatter. There's people at home, the social, just talking to each other, what they're looking for, what they're asking for. And then what are people ordering at restaurants? And they're both very important. And when those two things converge, then you can see that that's something that's going to be very popular that you should try to take a hold of. Yeah. So the reason I was kind of asking about um, about your background and kind of like the business side versus the the food side is for people who are kind of looking to to get into this business and looking to to get to like for example someone who wants to get hired on your team um, would they have to be which side would they have to be stronger in the side of understanding uh, business and consumers and pricing and, you know, supply chain and all of that, or uh, the actual, you know, food and food service market, how restaurants work, how uh, actually have spent time in the kitchen. I mean, if you want to be a chef, you better know about food, but if you want to work for a business, you have to know about business. So I would say it's always great to have a passion for whatever that is. But I think that's across the board, whatever company you want to, you want to work for. If you want to work for a fashion company, you better know about business if you want to work for the business, but it's great to have a passion. And I think it's kind of role specific because I probably know more about food and less about business, but that's my job. Um, So I have to know a lot about food. So I think it depends also on what you're trying to do, but it definitely helps to have a passion for it. But I think everybody out there should be following their passion and doing something that excites them on a daily basis. So food excites me, trends excite me, innovation excites me. So um, I think that that's important for any job, but when you work for a business, you have to understand the business side of it also, which, you know, when we were talking about how a meal gets made, it's great to think it's all super fun. And like, you know, I saw this dish and let's try to replicate it. But there's a business behind that. And this thing has to make money and we have to, you know, work within the margins and we have to be able to execute this operationally. So as much as I would love it to just be like, hey, chefs, make me this, replicate this dish that I saw, it's not that easy. So you really do have to understand the business side of all of it, but have a passion. So if you kind of, uh, you know, Magic Wand was able to make any like one big problem disappear um, out of your day-to-day, out of like your, the process you're, uh, you're working on right now, uh, what do you think that would be? It's funny. There's so, the problems I have are not real <laughs> problems. I'd love to be able to replicate crunch in a microwave. Um, that's something that I think about <laughs> a lot. How can we get crunch technology? I'm sure everybody out there is just sitting around thinking about how they can replicate crunch in a microwave. Um, <laughs> You know, we, 
think about those things all the time at Freshly. And we have so many people that are addressing all of those things. I mean, I think one of the cool things is like, there's things that we all want to do that we know are going to make things better. We're going to be better as a company. Um, and everyone's always striving to make those things happen. Even crunch in a microwave. We have a microwave guy that we're going to try to bring on board to like help us solve this problem because people want crunch. We want crunch. We want tater tots. We want tater tots and we want French fries. Uh, and we want to be able to do those things. So that's something that I would like to solve. So if any, if you know anyone who can solve for crunch, that's number one on my, on my list right now. Um, but there's other little things that, that we would love to do that we address, that we talk about, and we're always trying to find ways to solve for. Freshly just sounds like a really great place to, to work at. Like from all of this conversation, that's what I'm taking away. It just seems like an amazing company to work for. It is. It is an, it is an amazing company to work for. The company culture is really great. And we are like a family. We get along really well. Our team is really close. A bunch of us go on vacations together. Um, and we work really well together. I mean, we got to give credit to everybody that's hiring and interviewing people because people are experts. They've managed to hire people that are experts in what they've been hired to do. And so everybody knows what they're doing and everybody does it. And we feel empowered to make decisions and everything just comes together really well. Do we have glitches and problems? Of course, we're a company and we're trying to figure things out. And sometimes things happen that are out of our control. And sometimes we want things that we can't have like crunch. Um, but for the most part, it's a really great company culture. And obviously we have an amazing, our founders are amazing. Our Mike, who's our CEO is, I mean, he didn't pay me to say this. Probably I've worked with so many CEOs in the 20 years I've been in the food industry because I was a, a consultant for almost eight years. Mike is probably one of the best CEOs I've worked for. He really, I feel like he really listens to people and tries to address concerns within the company and just has really great foresight about what people want. I mean, he started freshly five years ago and look what's happened in five years. So that's, that's pretty amazing on its own. Yeah. It's wild to think that it's a five-year-old company. I know it's crazy, right? It's yeah. yeah, we've done a lot in five years. I always like to say to one of the one of the my women colleagues who has a couple people under her, I always tell her, leaders are listeners. And that is the number one thing I think for a good leader is to listen, is to hire people who are just as smart or if not smarter than you and listen to them. And I think our CEO, Mike, does a good job at listening to people. I think that's why he's a good leader. Yeah, no, it sounds amazing. I mean, right now I'm, I'm good with my, with my TasteWise gig, but uh, yeah, I'm a, I'll just be browsing the Freshly Career website. Um, so uh, kind of uh, for, for the last thing I, I want to spend some time talking about is, um, is the research component of, uh, of your role. Um, so you talked about how you spend a lot of time uh, trying to understand you know, what consumers are going to want, like you said, looking into the crystal ball, trying to, to figure out what um, the next phase of that should be. So when you are doing research, um, where do you typically start? Um, blank slate? Or do you come to that with a certain amount of direction uh, before you actually start the process? So... Uh, it's it's kind of a little bit of both, but nothing's really that blank slate because I am food obsessed and I travel a lot 
and I take notes on my phone everywhere I go about ingredients, formats, what I'm seeing. Again, talking about like the patterns. When I start seeing patterns of either formats or ingredients or flavors as I'm traveling, there's so many notes on my phone. Um, And when I'm reading stuff, I read so much online every day about food, what's opening, what's closing, what's popular, where are their lines, what are, what's in demand. And I make notes about that also. And I send myself articles all the time so that I can reference them. So I'm never starting from a blank slate. Um, I'm starting from some research just in terms of like what's online and what people are talking about. And then my own notes about what I've seen and what patterns I think are really going to start forming in the next year. Um, And then I dig into those. So from there, from all of the qualitative, I start trying to match them with quantitative um, and seeing what's really resonating, what's growing in sales, what's growing in popularity, what has increased chatter online about it. So like for a lot of that stuff, I use TasteWise. A lot of that stuff I use other, you know, Statista or just to see charts and graphs and get some numbers, some sales and growth numbers behind all of those things. Um, because sometimes the vocal, there's a very vocal minority about certain products, but it, it doesn't mean it's really resonating with consumers. So a lot goes into, um, into that, as, into that side of it. Um, and then, I mean, that's kind of it. It sounds so simple, but it's so time consuming because I have a really long list of ideas that, that I feel based on what I've seen and what I've read are going to be the next big thing, but I can't just go off gut. I mean, sometimes I feel like my gut's pretty accurate after 20 years of doing this. Um, but you know, we're a company and we need data to back these things up. So, um, from all of my notes and all of the collection of, you know, things I've read, then I go from there trying to match them up with actual consumer insights, market insights, trend insights, and then numbers. So Mm -hmm. a lot of growth to see, you know, where that trajectory is in a certain flavor or an ingredient or, um, you know, I look and I look at so many sources. I look to see what people are buying in grocery stores, what people are ordering for delivery and takeout, um, what people are ordering in restaurants. And sometimes you just get to this great place where it all matches up and it's like this, you know, it all comes together and it's, it's not always like that, but you know, you hope that you see certain things seasonally that are really resonating with people in all of those areas. Was there any specific um, meal that you worked on in the, in the last two years that you're like specifically very proud of because it, because of either the process or the really innovative idea, or, you know, maybe people thought it wouldn't do well and it did do well, but uh, what, is there any like interesting war story there? There's so many and so many of the meals on the menu when it launches and and it actually does well, then everyone jokes with me about it and sends me notes. They're like, Oh, Rachel's meal. It did do well. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm going to say, I mentioned the purple sticky rice because it's very top of mind. Cause I fought so hard for that purple sticky rice. I'm like, guys, I'm telling you Korean food people, you know, there's so many Korean restaurants, even opening like in the Midwest and in the South and um, people really love rice. And I think they're really going to think this purple sticky rice is really cool. And um, we had a call the other day, an all company call and Mike, our CEO did a little chit chat with um, Steve, the CEO of Nestle, 
who said his favorite meal on the freshly menu was the purple sticky rice meal. You were like, yes. I know. And I got so many slacks. Everyone was like, oh, your meal. Um, but I think there's, there's a lot of meals like that because I, everyone at the company knows a lot about food, but like, it's like my passion. It's my obsession. And I see a lot more of it than I think a lot of people within the company see. And I, my gut does my gut is good to me. It's It does tell me sometimes when something will really resonate. And I did feel really passionately about that dish. And the chef who worked to create it did a great job also. Him and I were high-fiving yesterday about it. But um, yeah, there's a lot of dishes that I feel like I fight really hard for. And some I have to build bigger business cases around because people aren't convinced and some people aren't as familiar with something. So even internally, sometimes there's a little bit of a battle to get a meal made that I want made. Yeah. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to have to check out the sticky rice meal now after <laughs> all of that. Uh, thank you so much for that. That's fascinating. I feel like, uh, like I, I learned a ton just from like how passionate you are about, uh, about what you do, but also I think you have a really unique perspective about, um, how to take these meals directly to, to consumers. Um, it's, uh, it's such, uh, so I, I worked in a completely different field for about 10 years before joining TasteWise. I worked in cybersecurity and IT and like that whole world, which is um, infinitely less exciting. Um, and uh, so for the past seven or eight months that I've been with uh, TasteWise, I'm, I'm learning this industry uh, from the food service side, from the retail side, from restaurant side, from direct to consumer. Um, and, uh, and I think this is one of the one of the most like uniquely innovative industries that are out there um, right now and both in its ability to uh, to get feedback really quickly from consumers but also by having you know your consumers uh, essentially telling you what they want on all of these multiple different levels whether it is online or as you travel and, and talk to people, which really doesn't exist almost in, in any other industry. So I think that's fascinating. Yeah. And honestly, in some aspects, it's really close to the restaurant industry, which is why I think I rely on the restaurant industry a little bit to tell me trends because chefs are on the front lines of food. There's no other industry where you're getting as immediate feedback as you are at a restaurant. If you see a plate come back and they didn't touch it, you know, they didn't like it and you have the ability to ask them about it. And also when somebody really likes something, they say to you right there, oh my God, that was the best thing I ever ate. Or like, this is the most delicious chicken I've ever had. So there's not that many industries where you can get such immediate feedback and restaurants is one of them, but we get pretty immediate feedback from our customers about what they like, what they don't like, what resonates with them, what they want more of. Um, and there's not a lot of industries that that have the ability to be able to get that feedback in a pretty rapid manner from, from the people that are, you know, using their product and consuming their product. So it's been really interesting for me also um, to be able to work with that data, which even in CPG world, never had that data. I mean, not to knock them, they're not great at collecting consumer data. I mean, they do a lot of panels and a lot of roundtables, whatever they're doing with their consumers, but they're not really getting, people aren't buying Oreos and then writing a note online. These Oreos were great. Love this flavor. I mean, they can see sales wise, obviously they know, um, but we get much deeper insights from our customers. So it's, it's been pretty fascinating for me also. Yeah, that's incredible. Awesome. Um, yeah, I know that, uh, that you said you had a, another meeting in about uh, 10 minutes, so I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, so first of all, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for it. Uh, we'll, 
We'll probably start releasing these in a couple of weeks. Uh, we've recorded a bunch of interviews and uh, I've been learning a ton. Um, I was wondering uh, if uh, you feel comfortable using the last few minutes for me to, to do, like ask you a few questions about like taste-wise outside of the podcast. Let's do it. Um, yeah. So if you can tell me a little bit about um, how you use taste-wise in your day-to-day -day and, and how do you feel it has uh, benefited you? So in my day-to-day, -day, um, there's a few ways I use it. So I do use it at the beginning of the concept process when I'm going through all of my trends and putting together concepts. I'll take a look at TasteWise and see specifically if, there, if that thing, that dish um, is resonating within the restaurants, if there's a lot of people putting that thing on their restaurant menu. Um, and I'll also take a look to see like recipes at home. Are people talking about this thing at home? Um, I used it the other day when I was looking into salads um, and just seeing which salads are the most popular, how many restaurants they're in. And then I use a lot of the price point data um, because we're always working on um, value perception and whether or not this thing fits into uh, how much our meals cost. So obviously, like we wouldn't want to put a chicken Caesar salad on the menu if the average price of a chicken Caesar salad, people aren't used to paying $11, $12, $13 for it. So Um, I, I use it a lot to compare pricing. Um, but yeah, I use it a lot in my, in my day to day, not just when I'm concepting, even when I'm working through sort of new avenues for the menu to see if something makes sense. I think I talked to Deborah last time I was working on something with fish just to sort of see what fish are trending, what the price points are, how many restaurants they're in geographically, where those restaurants are, is that where the freshly consumer is? So there's a lot of pieces of the platform that I use on a pretty regular basis. That's awesome. So um, do, do you feel like the main kind of thing that you're getting out of it is like the access to data and, and like maybe time saved um, that otherwise you would A lot of time saved, not having to go to 10 other sites to try to find this one thing I need. But there's also not a lot of um, data platforms that aggregate so much social data in terms of what people are talking about. Um, and that's what I need. I want to know what the at-home regular consumer is talking about. What are they cooking? What are they making? What are they ordering at restaurants? That's important to me because that's who our consumer is also. So normally I would have to go to like 15 sites and be searching around salads and then fish. And then, I mean, TasteWise has saved me a lot of time, a lot. It's been great. And also just seeing, um, I use the motivators a lot also as I was working on concepts for Freshly Fit, just seeing certain meals and menu items and what those top motivators are, just trying to keep them aligned with like, When people are on a keto diet, when people are, you know, on a paleo diet, what is, is a burger, is keto a top motivator in that category? Just to try to keep aligned with where social conversation is kind of going, just so that it makes sense for the consumer. Awesome. Cool. That, like, even that gives me a ton of insights into, you know, how people are actually using the platform. Um, cool. So I'll, I'll uh, let you go. Thank you once again.